second second reading is taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. And it can be found on page 1230 of the Pew pew Bibles or on the the overheads. (coughs) If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, as you can guess from the accent and perhaps even from the height, I'm the person that John referred to earlier. Thanks, John, for not mentioning my bald head. (laughs) Uh, Before we come to God's word this morning, can we just have a moment of prayer? Let's uh, bow our heads and our hearts. Uh, Father God, we thank you for this, your day. We thank you for this, your word. Help us, O Lord, that our minds may be clear, that our hearts may be warmed, that we may go from here transformed by your spirit. Speak to us, we ask, and mold us into the image of your Son, for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen. Well, if you could have open before you the passage that was read to us just now, and particularly in Philippians 2 and verse 12. Philippians 2 and verse 12 Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, 
continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The passage in Philippians 2, uh, we behold the glory of Christ in this great and ancient hymn of Paul. And in particular, we see three great movements. We behold his pre-existence, his time before he comes in this world. We note also his humiliation and becoming a man. And we note also his exaltation and ascension to the right hand of God in glory. The Lordship of Jesus Christ in three phases. And after they have this hymn, we have this word, therefore. And I want us to hang on to this this morning and for the implication of Paul's message, first to the church in Philippi, but also to ourselves. Work out your salvation. Be involved ourselves in our salvation. Work it out, says Paul. The great assumption Paul is making is that this salvation matters. It matters to all of us and is of supreme importance to us as believers. Salvation could also be defined as, as health, as spiritual health in the Greek. Work out your health. Now, we work hard at some aspects, particularly when it comes to matters of health. We exercise, we diet, we go to the gym and take out gym membership. We don lycra, some of you may don lycra and cycle. Health matters to us. If it didn't matter to us, we wouldn't have the various health insurance companies trying to sell us their product. Spiritual health, Paul says, matters just as much as physical health. And we work hard at physical health and we work hard at our jobs. We want to progress our careers. We, we read the latest literature. We, we subscribe to journals. We go to conferences. We cultivate contacts. We go through professional development. We bring our whole work home with us to do it in the evening because it was a great matter of importance to ourselves and our personal lives. Our health matters, our jobs matter. And so Paul says, your salvation matters. And it should. The question faced this morning is this, is it true? Is it true that our salvation matters to us? For those who face persecution, perhaps even this day, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, this is a question they will perhaps ask on a daily basis. Is God, is Jesus Christ in the gospel more important than life itself? Because at a profound and deep level, faith, in Christ is akin to martyrdom, being prepared to lay down one's life 
for one's ultimate and supreme object of worship and adoration. The Apostle Paul, who would ultimately pay that very price himself and so fulfill the words that he says earlier in this epistle, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul worked out his salvation. So this morning, what does it mean? What does it mean for us to work out your salvation? As we unpack this, I would give two main applications. First, to individuals. And then to the level of the church and the congregation. So, as individuals, work out your salvation. What does that mean? I think, first and foremost, Paul is calling us to deal with our sin. And Philippi was a beautiful church, a church full of great believers saved by faith, justified by grace, adopted by God into his family, transformed at their very core and very heart of their lives by the Holy Spirit. But in them and in ourselves, there is still sin. We're aware of our selfish pride we're aware of the acts that we commit, the thoughts that we have, that we know dishonor Christ himself. Despite being made right before God through the cross, we are made aware because of the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we're made aware of the sins that we commit. And we need to address that reality. We need to identify the entanglements. The, apostle, the writer to the Hebrews mentions, we need to identify what they are. What's the cause? The lack of trust in our part that we prefer to go our own way rather than God's way. We need to identify with the sin and then we need to deal with them. If you take the language of Paul in the book of Romans, it's a language full of violence when it comes to sin. We have to murder them, do away with them, starve them from oxygen. If you're serious about your salvation, Paul says, deal with the sin. Deal with it. Back in Scotland, in the tradition I come from, there was a tendency when it came to communion when Paul says to examine ourselves, people would examine themselves, see their sin, and would not come to the table. Our duty is not to identify our sins and then not come to a table. Our duty as Christians is to identify our sins and then to kill them, to murder them, to say, I'm not going on that website. I'm not going to that party. Because I know the temptations and I know I do not want to be involved. 
to work out our salvation, you must be able to deal with your sin and murder. To work out our salvation also means that Paul is asking us to grow in grace. Yes, we are saved through Christ's work. Yes, we are justified. We are declared right with God. We are forgiven our sins. We are born again, adopted into the God's family and alive spiritually. And because we're alive spiritually, we're expected to grow. Where there are living things, a sign of living thing, biology 101 is that there is growth. We are to grow in our graces. That is what we are to attend to. To work out your salvation, to work out my salvation, we are to take pains to ensure that our faith grows and develops. Is your faith growing? Is your hope in Christ growing? Is, is it? Or is it starting to stagnate? Is the world and its attitudes impinging on us so that we are losing the joy of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ? To put it this way, is the reality of heaven real for you? If there's one thing we hear less of, it's the reality of heaven. If anything, we should be looking to the world that is to come. We are to have hope in this Christ. Paul was painfully aware of the crushing experiences of life. He experienced them with the Corinthian church. And he writes to them this, these words. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul, in the midst of great anguish, is focusing on the God of heaven above, of the hope that he has through Christ of heaven and life eternal, where all rights, all wrongs will be righted. So too often we downplay the heaven because we think, oh, it's a bit too much like pie in the sky when we die. But what consolation do you have this morning in the face of death? What courage do you have in the face of death? It is the hope that gives patience and gives us endurance. We are to grow in hope and faith and love to God and to others. We are to be the enfleshment of God's love here in this world to one another in this place and to the world itself. Work out your faith 
Work out your hope and work out your love. And God has done a way, given us a way for that to come about. He has given us those very means of grace by which we receive his blessing and by which we grow day by day. God has given us his precious word. He has given us the sacraments of baptism and communion. He's given us prayer. He's given us the Christian friends that we have in this life. He's given us the means by which we can find food to nourish our faith, hope, and love. So many things that we experience God's grace by. It's not just happened on a Sunday. The Christian literature that we can get from the library, we can download a podcast of some of the finest preachers of the world. Never been so easy. But are we growing in our life, in our love, and our hope in the grace of Jesus Christ? Or are we kind of kicking back with the latest box set and wondering why Jesus isn't all that important anymore? He's given us the means of grace. Think of the privileges that we have. There'll be billions in this world today who will never hear God's word either preached or even spoken out. Yet you have this day. God has given us these miracles so that we might grow in his grace. But Paul also is asking us to grow our gifts. All of us have gifts. Each one of you has your own special endowment by God himself for you to use in the body of Christ the church. These are God's gifts to you. But these gifts are to be worked at. These gifts are to be fanned into flame. You've got to exercise them for the body of Christ to grow. Your giftedness and your effectiveness has to be utilized. You know, we've most passages have a mention there of the idea of athletics and the idea of being involved in the race. You're involved. But for an athlete to go out and go for the medal, they have to train. They have to fan the gift that they have. Gary Player, the golfer, said uh, when he was accused of being lucky, it's amazing, the more I practice, the luckier I get. He fanned the flames of his golf. Well, we're quite happy to go down to the golfing range and knock a few balls. But are we fanning the gifts that Christ has given us for the benefit of his church? For those teachers who are fanning the gifts and are taking part this morning in the Sunday school. But it's a gift to be worked at. Do not take the gift that you have for granted. Sometimes people do. They kind of are naturally good at something and yet don't fan the flame. They just rest in the gift without exercising it and getting trying to make it better for God's glory. There's a story of a, an old 
uh, principal of a college back in Scotland called uh, Dr. Rainey. He was a bit of a, a character. And he heard one of the students preach in the college uh, as an example text. It was always a daunting thing to do. And uh, Dr. Rainey heard the student and said, oh, Mr. So-and-so has the fatal gift of fluency. In other words, Rainey was saying, he's got the gift, but I'm not sure he's working at it. Don't get blasé with the gifts that God has given. They have to be fanned into flame. So the elders work on your leadership and your pastoral care. For the musicians, work on the gifts that God has given you in music. For those who have the gift of encouragement, work at it. For those who pray and have the gift of prayer, keep on praying. For those who have the gift of meeting people and engaging in conversation, work at it. Stir up that gift. For the apologist, work on your gift to give a sound defense of the Christian faith. Whatever your gift is, work at it. And also I think Paul is asking us to, call, to, to work in something else. He's calling us to grow here in the whole concept of self-control. Self-control when things go wrong, when we face the accusations posed by others, where self-control is required in life, not just meaning avoiding the latest cake in after the service when you're on a diet. Self-control, the idea of meekness, we are to grow like Christ. We are to grow meek like Christ. Grow in your salvation that you may grow like him, a man and woman of the Beatitudes. Oh, it's easy to be a theologically aware. Oh, it's easy to be an activist. It's easy to be able to shout louder than the world. But it's much harder to be self-controlled. Paul is challenging us as an individual level. But also, Paul is challenging us as a congregational level to work out our salvation. Back to that word in verse 12, therefore. Because Paul links this therefore directly with the great hymn of Christ. Why did Paul go through and give us this great excursus on the glory of Jesus Christ? Because I believe, first of all, that he wants us to adopt the very mindset of Christ as a church. This church at Philippi, if you read it in the book of Acts, the church at Philippi had so many privileges planted by the Apostle Paul himself. Great and wonderful conversions and great converts. There's Lydia, the seller of purple. There's the Philippian jailer. Great members like Epaphroditus. It was a splendid, a splendid church in so many ways. They loved Paul. And Paul loved them. They showed 
their love to Paul in so many practical ways while he was with them and even when he was away from them. But inside this splendid, wonderful, beautiful congregation, there is this tiny little cancer in the body. A cancer of envy, strife, and selfish ambition. People are not getting on. People are adopting the attitude of, I am senior and you are junior. Now, in the sphere of things, this is not a major crisis. But it's big enough for Paul. For him to go off to this greatest poetry here in the New Testament. This Christ hymn. This mindset of Christ is to be ours. His willingness to be himself absolutely nothing. To exchange the divine glory and the praise of the angels above and to take human flesh, to take the form of a human servant, to make himself nothing. He does not adopt the mindset and say, I know who I am. I demand my rights. He does not say, I want you to know who I am. And if I go to that cross, I want you to be all clearly aware of who it is that goes there. He does nothing like that. He does not demand the glory. He does not demand the recognition of his rights. He takes our human nature and makes himself nothing. In Glasgow, in Glasgow I think, in Scotland, there's a phrase about bad people. He started bad and he fell away. Think about it with Christ. He starts in a stable. Not the best starts. Not in a home. He starts bad. And he ends in a Roman cross. We are to adopt the mindset of Christ. Work out your salvation, St. Stephen by adopting the mindset of Christ. The congregation in Philippi was healthy. There's nowhere bad as Corinth. But Paul says to them, work out your salvation. Let your mindset be like Christ. Adopt the mindset of Christ. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand fast in the gospel. Paul is probably also aware of the lack of steadfastness and the lack of perseverance among the people in Philippi. People are falling away. People kind of drifting off. The church in Philippi needed to stand firm. 
face the danger then as we face the danger today of exchanging the gospel for another one or to dilute the gospel so that it loses its message. We are to stand fast on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. We are to continue to preach Christ crucified. It's a terrible message. Didn't look wise then and it doesn't look wise today. Here we are preaching a message about a Jewish criminal executed 2,000 years ago and that he is the world's savior and the universal Lord of all. And Paul says, go, tell them that message. Stand firm in the lordship of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, the Lord of every sphere and of every area of life. In science and art and politics and religion. Is it Abraham Kuyper, Dutch theologian, prime minister, who says there isn't an area of life that Christ does not look down and put his finger on and say, that is mine. And so often we compartmentalize. We say, well, we can have this. Christ can have this. But he doesn't get to hold this part of my life that I hold the dearest to me. Because that's my, those are my rights. Stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in him and his gospel. Do not dilute. It was said that we're only a generation and a half away from apostasy. Yeah. And history is full of churches that have stood fast and then kind of diluted it then, kind of got embarrassed by it, and then basically rejected the gospel at all. Be of one mind. Be firm on the foundation of Christ. Be of one mind. Ah, oh, here in the congregation we have Yodia and Syntyche, diligent women in the congregation, wrestlers for the gospel, we are told working at their wit Christian witness, but those, that couple were not of one mind. As a congregation, let us learn to confess, apologize, and at times perhaps just walk past the insults. Learn to be of one mind. Learn to be united. Let's be less fractious with one another so that we might pray to be united and loving and caring to one another. Let us also, I feel, be content with the small voice of Christ. Thinking back that uh, seeing the election results this week and seeing the demise of many major political figures in the UK, it's Truth to the adage that all political life ends in failure. But even for Christians and some of the greatest servants of God who experienced great highs, they also experienced great disappointments and frustrations at life's end. 
Think of Elijah and Mount Carmel where he sees the, the fire of God come down and answer prayer and the glory of God come there and confound all the enemies of the gospel. And yet, before too long, he is driven to despair. And he, God comes to him and says, I want to show your glory. There was a wind and God was not in the wind and there was an earthquake and God was not in the earthquake and there was a fire and God was not in the fire. But God's there in the small voice. John Knox, on his deathbed, John Knox was the founder of Presbyterianism, the man who fought tooth and nail for it. And yet on his deathbed, he's brought the news that the lords of the congregation wanted to adopt episcopacy, wanted to turn his back on all his work. That was the message that he heard. Be content with Christ. Stand firm together. And as a congregation, be deployed. You've got those gifts. The gifts that you know, given by God, these gifts have to be deployed, to be made effective. Every part is to work. Every bone, every sinew, every muscle, every ligament. God has given to the body of church. Each gift is to be deployed and used efficiently. Be involved. Be involved. I realize that some of you sitting here today are thinking, well, I, I, I'm not a volunteer. Trust me, I'm not a volunteer. All right? First thing my grandfather told me, son, then he volunteer for anything. To translate, don't a volunteer at all. Knox, bring him back into the conversation, Knox wasn't a volunteer. He was press ganged to be the, the minister and pastor of the congregation. They recognized the gifts. Now, some of you here may be having great gifts, perhaps going to be great preachers and teachers and servants of Christ. You're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not called. Well, you are now. I don't volunteer. Well, someday you may be press-ganged into it. It might not be your nature. You're not maybe waiting for God's call. But there should be no underutilized gifts of God in Christ's church. Identify the elders and board of management. Identify the gifts and find place for the gifts to be utilized. And beware refusing to use your gift in the service of Christ. The one who gave you the gift wants you to use it. There's no place for introverted people who, are, who, invert, who turn around and say, oh, well, no, that's inverted pride. Use the gifts as I close, be a nobody. That seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Be, be using your gifts and yet be a nobody. Working out your salvation on a congregational level for the heart and life of this congregation, you need to adopt the mindset of Christ who made himself nothing. 
Sometimes we can have too many chiefs and not enough Indians. Lots of somebodies, but very few nobodies. Remember, Christ made himself of no reputation. He takes the form of servant. We need that mentality. I need that mentality. A willingness to be nothing in a congregation. Willingness to be unrecognized. We might become nothing so that Christ might be all in all. Take that slave form and take it on regardless of the circumstances. You see in that verse, right in verse 12 when he says, not only in my presence but much more so in my absence. It's great when things are going well. Nice big congregation. There may be a time when you're not in a big congregation. You might be in a support network in a CU in a university, but that day might end and you'd be away because of work. Whatever the change of circumstances that we face in life, we are to work out our salvation regardless. Work out your salvation when the support is there and work out salvation when sometimes the support is negligible and you feel isolated. Because where's Paul writing this? Oh, that's right. He's in isolation, in a prison. Yet he works out his salvation. He's dealing with his sin. He's growing in the grace and faith and hope and love of Christ. He's using the gifts that he has despite the chains growing in self-control and like Christ. He's adopted the mindset of Christ Jesus himself, standing fast in the gospel when everyone says recant, urging that everyone be of one mind and content with God and his providence. Be involved. Be a nobody. For the Christ who loved us and who has died for us on a cross. Let us pray. Bless us, O Lord, we pray. May we have the very mindset of Christ, not only for one day a week, but for every moment of every day. Make ourselves nothing, nobodies, so that we may reflect the manner of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes in human form to embrace our humanity, to embrace that cross, and to make, O oh Lord God, us new creations in him. Help us, Lord, to work out our salvation for his glory and his honor. Amen.